Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I've entitled um, this message, Not Many Called. It's going to be a short study, even though we're going to go through the, all of uh, chapter 1. And it's really uh, an introduction um, to 1 Corinthians. And um, our text is uh, chapter 1, verse 26, where Paul read for us earlier. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord." And once again, as we begin our study, we have a connection. Old Testament um, uh, prophecy in verse 31. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Paul planted the church in Corinth on his second uh, missionary journey. And we have that recorded for us here in Acts chapter 18. In verse 1 it said, And after these things Paul departed from Athens. Athens would be a part of Greece as Corinth is a part of Greece. And after these things Paul departed from Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, a tent maker, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jew and Greek. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, uh, Paul was constrained by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garment and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, I'm clean. For now I will go to the Gentiles. And he parted from there, and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and notice here, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision, don't be afraid, but speak, And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The city is Corinth. 
And he continued there a year and six months, a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. As we begin our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, actually, it was the most important city in Greece in Paul's day. I'm going to put up um, a picture. I've been to the ruins, and certainly we didn't see anything like this. I will put up a picture a little while of what it does look like, but um, it was important because of the worldwide commerce, because of its location. There were two ports, and I'm going to put a picture of Corinth and where it would be on a map, and what I want to draw your attention to, I picked this particular picture because... um, if you look carefully, you can see that it, Corinth sits where the land narrows. And um, they would have a port on each side. And so a lot of the commerce would come from the north and come from the south. It finally got to the point where they began to drag the boats from one side in the south to the north Then they actually tried, the Romans actually tried to dig a canal. Um, They were unsuccessful, uh, but there was a canal that was um, um, built, and uh, that canal is is, uh, shown there, but I got a better picture of it so that you can see it. That's the canal as it looks today. Now, the Romans tried to dig that out, and you get, <laughs> that had to be quite a job. Uh, but it was completed in the 1800s. So if you would visit uh, Corinth today, you would go over this. And um, the reason for its wealth is because of these two ports and much commerce and trade were done uh, because of it. Uh, Paul would wrote two letters to the Corinthians, Uh, He was there for, like I said, about a year and a half from 51 to 52 AD. Uh, The church called out, um, it came out of a very pagan system, an idolatrous religion. Um, The key city of Corinth was destroyed first time in 146 BC by Rome, but it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 46 BC. In Paul's day, there were 700,000 people that lived in Corinth, and two-thirds of the 700,000 were actually slaves. And the most famous temple was to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And I'm going to show you where that temple would have been. And... um, That's it right there. This would be accurate if you would visit Corinth today, but what I want to draw your attention to is that uh, hill in the background, and that's where the temple of Aphrodite would have been, the goddess of love. Now, um, they had 1,000 consecrated prostitutes have you ever heard of an oxymoron? <laughs> if ever there was. But 
1,000 of them, when uh, they would uh, worship Aphrodite, the goddess of love, um, basically they were nothing more than prostitutes. And it's really what the city became known for, sort of the Las Vegas of the world. Uh, people went there on vacation to party. Uh, it became so famous for its evil that the term Corinthia, uh, let's see if I can say it right, Corinthiasism, was adopted, basically the word means to live like a Corinthian. Uh, It became synonymous for debauchery and prostitution. So that's what it was known for. And people would go there just to party hardy um, in the same way that a lot of people would go to to Vegas. So with that little bit of an introduction, uh, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And look at the introduction that Paul gives to them. We'll look at the first nine verses here and come back to verse three. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who are in every place, call on the Father of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stop there for a moment. And um, this is very typical of Paul opening one of his epistles by saying grace and peace to you. And um, as Pastor Chuck would always say, um, you'll never really know the peace of God until you've experienced the grace of God. That's a good place for an amen. But it's got to be that way. It can't be accomplished through works. We just got done going through Romans. So I'm going to have you turn back to Romans and um, just sort of amplify this truth. Romans chapter 11 Um, verse five and six, as he's talking about Israel, trying to accomplish and satisfy God by keeping the Jewish law, which they were unable to do, which is a form, of course, of, of works, religious works. So we read in verse five, even so at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now preceding that, he's talking about the covenant that they had and they're trying to keep the law and um, basically Paul's just laying it out here. No, there's a remnant. Paul would be part of that remnant who believed in the grace and the work of of Jesus Christ that he accomplished on Calvary's cross. And then it says, and if it's by grace that it's no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace, but it's of works or the law it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. In other words, it's one or the other. You can try to make it on your own. Um, Just know this, if you're trying to do that, you gotta do it perfectly. Uh, You can never thought a sinful thought, never lusted, never stole anything, never told a lie. How are we doing so far? Anybody wanna raise their hand, said they're... (laughs) Doing pretty good with all that? (laughs) Didn't think so. 
And so it, it becomes clear that we need the grace. Um, here's the good news. There was somebody who came who never sinned in thought, word, or deed. And when he was addressed on his, who, who are you, he said, well, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I haven't. I've come to fulfill it. We're not talking just the Ten Commandments here, my friends. We're talking 613 of them. And what he is saying is, I fulfilled every one of them perfectly. Don't think I've come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. And um, so there was one who came. And that's why Jesus is the only way. And there is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Either you live the perfect life or he lived the perfect life. And what he did is he took your sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 21, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might receive the righteousness of God. I like to call it, steal Bruce Carroll's song, The Great Exchange. I get his righteousness and he takes my sin. Now that's a good deal. And he says, and you'll know the truth, and what I just told you was the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I can't, have, I can't be a part of that equation. Uh, and you can't be a part of that equation because we'll screw it up. Somewhere, somehow, some way. But what that does and what it produces is the first commandment. And that is, thou shalt love the Lord your God. And we, because he did that for me, well, I love him because he did that for me. But if I'm doing it out of um, trying to be a nice guy or religious or anything like that, um, I can't walk with that confidence or have that freedom or have that gratitude towards the Lord. So when you see that it's all him, uh, you produce a love for your Savior because he did it all and he did it all for you. Uh, Go back to chapter five in Romans, just one couple pages back. Um, looking at oh, one and two. Therefore, having been justified, well, we've been talking about justification and difference between that and sanctification. Therefore, having been justified, that's when you first accept the Lord. He wipes the slate clean just as though you've never sinned. And then we enter into the process of sanctification, which is, a lifelong process of the Lord making you more like him. Uh, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the glory of God. Well, we sure do. And here he talks about the peace because of the work of the cross, and then we have this faith uh, into his grace, and that's where we're standing, on that solid rock we sang about earlier. No works. The disciples came to the Lord one day, and it's this, if you're taking notes, it's in John 6. And they said, Lord, what can we do? What works can we do that um, we might have eternal life? And in verse 29 of John 6, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him 
who he sent, and then there's a period at the end of the sentence. Nothing more can be added. It's either grace or it's works, but it's one or the other. And um, uh, let's go back to our introduction and finish reading uh, verses four through nine. Speaking to them, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you should come short in no gift eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So from the beginning, there's two things here. Um, Of all the churches, the Corinthian church was the most messed up. And when he talks about spiritual gifts here, they had them so out of order that Paul had to write a special letter. We'll get there in chapter 12 and 14 because everything they were doing with their spiritual gifts was out of order. So the last verse of 1 Corinthians 14 says, let all things be done decently and in order. So you can say we're kind of structured here when we come in and um, we have an order of events. Paul comes out and does announcements. We have an opening song. We read a psalm and um, have a Bible study and then we all get together afterwards in fellowship and um, did the Golden Corral open back up again? I don't know. <laughs> no, not yet? <laughs> well, we hang and we fellowship. And um, it's, Jesus said he went to the synagogue, which was his custom. And this should be our custom. I mean, we said, unless you're traveling and on vacation or whatever, then your custom should be, well, Sunday morning is go to church. And um, that's what we do. Good place for an amen. amen. I was listening for all those who didn't say amen. <laughs> I know who you are. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, back to um, um, chapter one. And he confirmed you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 3 talking about the judgment seat of Christ, but there it has nothing to do with your sin. You will be blameless before him. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So these first um, nine verses here is uh, the greeting of grace by Paul to the church in Corinth. Now, 10 through 17, um, there was division over who they liked better, and he addresses it here in these verses. They were picking favorites as far as people. And we read in verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you be all the same, speak the same things, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Cleos' household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each one of you says, well, I'm of Paul. 
Others would say, well, I'm of Apollos. Others would say, well, I'm of Peter. And still others would say, well, I'm of Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. And then he starts thinking about it, oh, except for Christmas and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Oh, by the way, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I don't think, I don't know whether I baptized any other. Um, he's not putting down baptism. He just doesn't want to think that because Paul baptized him that Paul was somebody special. Uh, we have a baptism coming up, and if you've never been baptized as a believer, you should be. Whenever I say that, I, the question is, well, how come? And the answer is, because Jesus said so. <laughs> Clear enough. And it's a simple act of obedience. And what you're basically saying is, I am not ashamed of being a Christian. And here I am, a grown adult, being dunked in water, which is, we're going to talk about the foolishness of the world. They think that's crazy. Foolish, you crazy Christians. Dunking grown people into a swimming pool or a pond or whatever. That's crazy. Well, to the world it is crazy. But to those of us who are being saved, simply an act of obedience to what the Lord asks us to do to identify with him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Therefore, I'm going to do what he asks me to do. Just that simple. He goes on, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For again, here's another Old Testament prophecy, for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Well, let's just, well, just going to leave it right there. Um, I'm asking you to turn to Acts 18 again, but a different portion of it. Acts 18, looking at verses um, 24 through 28, and I want to talk a little bit about Apollos. All right, the morning's message is called um, Not Many Mighty. But that doesn't mean, he uses the word not many, but that means that there must be some. The reason they were arguing over Apollos is because he was extremely articulate and a very wise man. And so we're introduced to him here in Acts 18, verse 24, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, that would be Egypt, he was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, and he comes to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now this is important because um, we believe as Calvary chapels that there are two baptisms. There's being baptized into water and then there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you want one example of that and you're taking notes, you want to be a Berean, 
All you have to do is read um, Acts chapter 8 when um, the Lord was using him in revival. A lot of people were getting saved. Uh, Even the town sorcerer got saved and baptized. But then it goes on to say, but as yet the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them. So they send down to Jerusalem and they ask Peter and John to come up. And they come up and they lay hands on those who had believed and been baptized. And it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible clearly teaches both. And um, I think it's impossible literally to walk the Christian walk or to exercise spiritual gifts unless you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Good place for an amen. Well, I'm not sure if I have that. How do I go about getting it if I don't have it? Do I have to wait for another baptism and uh, get hands laid on there? No. Um, Read Luke chapter 11, and the Lord tells this interesting story about how to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He says, if you have a son, and he comes home and he says, Dad, I'm hungry. What's in the fridge? It says, will his father give him a snake or a serpent? He says, certainly not. And if your earthly father then is evil, well, then how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who simply ask for it? But what's interesting to me about this story is the context is that of being hungry. In other words, how bad you want it. You see, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according, and we're gonna get into this in Corinthians, is given with the purpose that the gift that God gives you is to actually build up somebody else. Now, if you're completely self-centered and into yourself, there's really not that need. It says if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then use it if you're taking notes. It's 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, It says if you're zealous for spiritual gifts, if you really want them, then you need to understand this. The reason that you have it is so that you can build somebody else out. No exceptions except one. And that's 1 Corinthians 14, verse four. And that's the gift of tongues. And it says the gift of tongues is for self-edification. So we'll have that Bible study when, when we get there. But here, as we're reading about Apollos, um, he'd only been baptized with the baptism of John, meaning he had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So verse 26, we began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and here's Aquila and Priscilla. Remember, they got kicked out of Rome. They heard him, and they took him aside and explained to him the word of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jew, Jewish publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And um, uh, there's so many examples that could be given. I think of Nicodemus. He was rich, he was religious, and um, yet he knew knew there was something missing. And uh, he says, I know that you've come from 
the Father because nobody could do what's being done unless God is living inside of him. And Nicodemus, the Lord says, you need to be born again. You're religious, but that doesn't do it. There are many religious people (laughs) in the good old U.S. of A., but that doesn't necessarily mean they're born again. So the Lord says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. And he's not getting it at all. So the Lord's using illustrations, trying to get him to see, and he says, well, Nick, well, I don't know if he said Nick or not, but like, short for Nicodemus. He says, you know, it's, it's sort of like the wind blowing through the trees. You can't see it, but you can see the results of what the wind does to the tree. The leaves move around. And so it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Oh, what do you mean by that? Remember, the Bible says unless you're born of the Spirit, you can't understand the things of the Spirit, right? In other words, it's got to happen to you before you actually get it. So he's thinking about that, all right, the wind blowing through the trees. In other words, I'm not going to see this literally. And uh, then he said, he told them this story. As it said here, he taught them from the scriptures. I wonder if he told them this story. He said, well, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, he was a Pharisee. He knew that story. Um, People complained. Snakes came out and bit him. People were dying. And they blamed Moses. And the Lord prayed. Uh, Moses prayed to the Lord. And he said, Moses, get get a, a pole and put a bronze serpent on it. Bronze is always symbolic of sin. So what do we have here? We have a a rod, and we got a bronze serpent on it. And Moses tells the people, whoever goes and looks at that bronze serpent, if you were bitten by the snake, by the way, everybody here has been bitten by the snake, it's sin, they'll live. And we're going to talk about the gospel bringing division. Well, it brought division here. And some people said, really? Where's, where's the stick with a serpent on it? And Moses over there. So they ran over and they looked at it and they were healed. And there were another group of people that said, look, I'm dying here. You want me to go look at a snake on a stick? How does that work? Well, those people died. And so the Lord is telling Nicodemus this story, but it was a picture of what he was going to do. He would be lifted up on a wooden cross, a pole, and he would become sin for us. And the lights were beginning to go on, and I can tell you that Nicodemus, I don't know if he was born again that day or not, but it was it was uh, him and Joseph of Arimathea that it says he was a, a believer, but a secret believer. I wonder what a secret believer is anyway. <laughs> All right, so I bring up Apollos because he's the exception rather than the rule. The rule is the Lord uses not very articulate, gifted speakers like um, Apollos, but ordinary people. But let's not exclude the, the Apostle Paul who studied under Gaius, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, brilliant in his knowledge of the scriptures. 
And um, so there, there are some. Go to, with me to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 3. And we're looking at verse, verses 1 through 8. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now remember, these people came out of very much a pagan community. I fed you milk, and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it. Even now, they're still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there is envy and strife and division among you, are you, are you not car- carnal and behave like mere men? For one says, I'm a Paul. And another says, well, I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You could be witnessing this one of your old buddies for years and years and years. What are you doing? You're faithfully planting seeds, but you never see the fruit. But you've been doing it, and all of a sudden, uh, he runs into a guy at work, and the guy pulls him aside and starts witnessing to him, and all of a sudden in his mind, all the stuff that the seeds that have been planted for all those years is starting to make sense because it's not coming from a family member or whatever. And so Paul is basically saying here, I planted, uh, Paulus watered, and, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants is anything or he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one receives his own reward according to his own labor. And this is where we go into, and we'll do this when we get to 1 Corinthians 3, the judgment seat of Christ. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. And we've made it through verse 17. Let's look at 18 through 25. To the message, though the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. I think wisdom can be a big stumbling stone. I was talking to somebody this week and um, he's concerned for his boy brought up in the Lord and um, was solid in the Lord uh, until he went to college in Madison, Wisconsin, which I call the Berkeley of the Midwest. And he took a class on religion uh, by a, a Madison professor. We would call them the wisdom of the world. So he teaches through this religious class and of course smears Christianity all over the place and say it's narrow and it's not open to other people's beliefs and so on and so forth. And he is a professor. <laughs> I, I tie that into professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I tie, tie those two words together. They have 
PhDs behind their name. Well, my interpretation of PhD is piled high and deep. (laughs) I don't know if they're going to have to edit that or not out of the study, but at least you got to hear it. You know, it's nothing more than pride. And with much wisdom, people can become arrogant. They can think they're above that and they know more. When the Bible says, no, I'm purposely hiding it from you. And I'm gonna pick the foolish things of the world so that nobody gets the credit and nobody's gonna glory in my present except the ones that I choose. So as we go on here, we left off in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. Gang, that's what we're doing this morning. We're having a Bible study. The message is being preached. And God has chosen this as one of his vehicles to sow seeds that are planted in people's hearts. And um, most people get saved um, listening to maybe an evangelist, maybe a guy at work, maybe Sunday morning service. Um, For me, it was watching Billy Graham in 1970 at home. And um, for others, I've had many people come up and I said, where do you get saved? I said, sitting up in that pew right over there. <laughs> in 1997. And uh, it happens differently to different people. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews as a stumbling block and to the Greeks it's foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Ordinary people. Um, The gospel always brings division. If you... um, Uh, Turn to Matthew chapter 10, and we'll just look at a couple of verses here. And I'll come back to verse 21. The gospel brings division. In Matthew 10, verse 34, we began a study of talking about grace and, and peace. But then he clarifies his statement in verse 34 by saying, don't think that I've come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, family members. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. In other words, somebody in the family gets saved. And as a result, you try to talk to your family members and your loved ones, and you say, I can remember talking to my father about it for the first time. And I said, Dad, it's it's not about going to church. You actually can know Jesus in in a personal way. And usually when I get to this point, I say, um, sons don't teach their fathers. Fathers teach their sons. And it was actually 
sort of an insult to dad thinking that I knew more than he did. I go to church every Sunday. I put $20 in that plate every Sunday. And I've been doing it for 25 years. <laughs> and I couldn't reach him. And you know the story because I've told it at least 100 times. I couldn't get through, but I was sowing seeds. So he makes a wrong phone call. Gets a born-again Baptist minister on the other end of the phone. Dad said, sorry, I got the wrong number. Baptist minister said, no, Larry, you did not get the wrong number. And over the course of a week, this man came over to our house and led my father to the Lord. I'd like you to say he, he was happy and rejoiced. He was not. He was mad. <laughs> and he went and had a meeting with the Protestant church that we went to. And he confronted the pastor. I've been coming here for 25 years. And in those 25 years, not once did I hear I needed to be born again. My dad was a very successful businessman in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. At least four businesses. He gave them all up. He left them all. He wanted to clear his head. How I knew he was born again? I came home one day and he said, son, I feel like I've wasted my whole life. That told me he's born again. So he decided to build a house up in Pine River. He wanted to clear his head. And he wanted to think this whole thing out. But um, when dad got saved, it was now a domino effect. At first, it brought division. And, uh, but later, now dad starts going to this Baptist church that talks about being born again. And as a result, then it was mom, then it was my brothers, and our whole family was saved except for one. So that's um, another story. I'm getting way too sidetracked here. Then it says in verse 37, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more is not worthy of me. Let's look back at verse 21. Um, For it since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those who are saved. So in other words, what's happening here this morning, people can actually come to Christ by weighing this out and um, God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save the lost and not the wisdom of this world. Which brings us to our text, which is the last verses 26 through 31. And we read, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no flesh would take credit for it or should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who because became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written he who glories will let him glory in the Lord. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 
for and while you're turning, I'm going to begin to tell a story. This is Jesus and who he called, who he picked to be his disciples. Let's look at those who the Lord chose to follow him. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, it says, Now Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then they immediately left their nets and followed him. Well, who are these guys? They're average fishermen, just an average Joe, like our friend from Canada, an ordinary guy. And he was the one choosing them. Let me get sidetracked here because of, uh, uh, this is an emotional day for the Calvary Chapel movement. Because the truth of the matter is, it was Kay and not Pastor Chuck that had a burden for the hippies. Chuck's attitude towards the hippies was pretty much this. Why don't they cut their hair and go get a job? And, um, uh, but Kay was just the difference. They lived close to Huntington Beach and that's where all the hippies hung out uh, down, down on a strip down there in Huntington Beach and she'd go down there and weep. Uh, her heart went out to these people and their oldest daughter, Janet, she said, Janet, you think you could find me a hippie and bring him home? And uh, she brought home a guy named Lonnie Frisbee. And um, Lonnie was one of the first ones that the Lord used, but it was really Kay. We probably have Calvary Chapel of Appleton today and worldwide Calvary Chapels, not because of Chuck, but because of Kay. It was her heart that went out. She says, can you find me a hippie? <laughs> Bring him on home, you know. And uh, he got saved, turned out to be quite an evangelist. And um, the rest is history because we were baptizing in those days 1,000 to 1,500 every week at Pirate's Cove. And it was a true, when, when people who study church history and true revivals, they said we haven't really seen a real revival in our lifetime except for the Jesus movement and the houses that sprang up, communal houses all over the country. And from 1968 to 1978, this is well documented, 100,000 people came to Jesus Christ through these dirty hippies. (laughs) And they wrote a different style of music that their generation could identify with. And that's why we have groups like Love Song and and, um, Randy Stone Hill and all the early Jesus people music that was there. I remember the first time I heard Love Song. I couldn't believe it. I remember sitting down and listening to a Bible study that a guy had longer hair than I did. How could a hippie give a Bible study? That's what I was thinking. And it was a great study. And he had such passion and love for the Lord. It just sort of exhumed out of him. 
And um, it's a historical fact. They got, they got a, a book on it. And um, the Jesus movement went worldwide. But who did he pick? Well, average fisherman. Turn with me to chapter 10 of Matthew. And we read there in verses one through four. Here's the rest of the entourage. Verse one, and he called his 12 disciples to him. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. Now the name of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector. A tax collector? We hate tax collectors. Well, that's who we picked. James, the son of Alphaeus and uh, Lydias, whose surname was Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. And so he picked 12. All of them um, ordinary, even one that would have been despised. Now turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, looking at Verses 13 and 14, some of my favorite scriptures right here. Um, Peter and John had just uh, healed this man. And in verse 13, um, the religious leaders didn't quite know what to make of it. So we read in verse 13, as Peter is preaching, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, number one, uneducated and untrained men. They marveled. These guys aren't smart. They're untrained. But then it says, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That was the difference. They were uneducated. They were untrained. But they were spending every day uh, learning from the master uh, himself. Um, And again, just average people. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We'll look at a couple of verses here. Or is it Luke chapter 8? Let me just check this quick. Oh, this is what I want. Okay. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 40. There's another category besides being uneducated and untrained. It's a category that you really realize what a a wretch you are, and then you're forgiven of you being a miserable wretch that saved a wretch like me. And that's the category of this parable that the Lord is talking about. In verse 40 it says, and Jesus answered and said to them, Simon, I have something to say to you because he had asked the question about forgiveness. And he said, say on teacher, He said, well, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon Peter answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom you forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman. Now, this is a woman who's caught in the act of, of adultery, and they want to stone her. 
And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, I like that, he turned to the woman, but then he looked to Simon. He said, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Why? For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So again, a motive of how the Lord chooses people is, and the ones who serve him really are the ones who are the most grateful. If you go to chapter eight and look at verses one and two, I'll, I wanna point out one in particular. Came to pass afterwards that he preached in every city and village, preaching and bringing glad tidings to the, of the kingdom of God, and 12 were with him. And there was a certain woman who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. She lives just north of Tiberias. That's where the ancient town of Magdal is. In the movie Gospel Road, June Carter Cash plays Mary Magdalene. And it shows this part of the movie where Jesus comes up to her, and I'm paraphrasing now, so bear with me. This is Mary Magdalene being played by June Carter Cash. He said, he came up to me and he touched me. And every time he touched me, I felt something evil leaving me. And he touched her seven times and that's why it says here of whom he had cast out seven demons. And then at the end of it, after this happens, she says, I'm gonna follow him. And then she says, because I love him. So all this evil that was inside of her, once she was cleansed, she says, I'm gonna follow him. Why? Because I love him. And she, she said, because I am clean. Close this morning with um, two, one a personal experience, and uh, with that one we need to turn to Luke chapter 10, which is just a couple pages away. It's Mary and Martha. And this is important as we take this, this study in this morning. It's just a couple of verses here, 38 to 42. So this would be the Mary and Martha from John 11, where Jesus would stay, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, she's going up to the Lord to complain, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work all by myself? Therefore, you tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, makes me think of Marsha, Marsha. 
you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, and I'm not going to take that away from her. Now, with that, in John chapter 11, I'm just going to read um, a couple verses where it tells us that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with her fragrant oil and hair, wiped her feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And then also that uh, she was the one in chapter uh, 12 uh, where the Lord, um, picking up in chapter 12, it was before the Passover, they had made a supper, and here it is, Martha served, Martha being Martha. Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, said, Why is this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take money from it. Then Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. The poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. What's your point, Dwight? Jesus over and over and over again said this to the disciples. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. Then they're going to crucify me. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. You know how much of that message they got? They were saying, they were arguing along the road. Now, Lord, we're on the way to Jerusalem. This is, this is uh, James and John, I think. And they're arguing about who can sit at your right hand, who can sit at your left hand. And he had just got done telling them what's going to happen. What's your point, Dwight? Why was it more important for Mary to sit at his feet and hear? Well, put it simply, she was listening. When the disciples weren't listening, she was. She wasn't preoccupied with all this other stuff. And when she heard Jesus say he's going to Jerusalem and going to die, what does she do? She gets some expensive ointment. And Judas rebukes her. And she says, don't do that. She's doing that for my burial. And my point is, uh, and this will be the last one, Revelation chapter two, and we're done. Verses one through five. To the church of Ephesus, you have to commend them because of their works. And the Lord does commend them. They were busy, 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 busy. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience, a lot of good qualities. You have labored, worker like Martha, for my name's sake, and you've not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you because you have left your first love. Remember, Therefore, where you have fallen, I call these the three R's. First of all, remember what it was like when you first came to the Lord. And then you got busy being a Martha. And then he says, I want you to repent. First, remember 
then repent, and go back and do the first work, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Remember, um, and repent, or else. So as we close this up, and as we begin our study in um, the book of Corinthians, um, we're gonna see that they were a church that had a lot of wrong ideas about how to do things. But the secret to be an overcomer is to be like Mary, sitting at his feet, hearing his words, and, um, and the rest will take care of yourself. In closing, if there's anybody here that needs to get back to their first love, um, then this message is for you. Actually, it's for all of us. Amen? And we need to remind ourselves of that daily. Let's stand. We'll close in prayer. Lord, as we begin the book of Corinthians, we thank you for your word. And um, this exhortation that nobody here should feel that they're not qualified, just the opposite that um, you seem to choose um, the least capable. And um, Lord, as you've chosen us, um, we're grateful. And um, if we've wandered from our first love, I pray your exhortation to the church of Ephesus, we would apply it to ourselves. And be like Mary and just sit at your feet and absorb it all and take it in. And we thank you, Lord. We do love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.